Well, thank you very much. It's always a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm going to tell you uh, mainly about my experience of Cumberland Lodge as a member of the Inner Temple, and I will come to Lord Denning and say a little bit about him uh, towards the end. I have tried but been unable to discover uh, when exactly the Inner Temple first sent its students here to Cumberland Lodge. I tried our archivist back at the temple, who's very assiduous, but she could find nothing to help. There seems to be a dearth of documents from the early years. I first came here as a bar student myself in the winter of 68-69, and that was, what, just over 20 years since the king and queen gave the house to St. Catherine's Foundation. And also, as I discovered the other day, it was only a couple of years since it was renamed the King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Foundation of St. Catharines. That was in 1966. By then, or by 68-69, the Inner Temple uh, was already coming here two weekends a year, and I think the other inns were doing the same. Uh, I, I got one piece of information from uh, William Shawcross, magisterial biography of the Queen Mother. I was very sorry to miss his presentation this morning. Uh, William Shawcross tells us she became a bencher of the Middle Temple in 1944 and was apparently the first ever royal bencher of an inn of court. Uh, at present, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh and Princess Anne are our royal benchers. Prince William is a royal bencher of the Middle Temple, uh, obviously since the Queen Mother's uh, death. Uh, Princess Margaret was at Lincoln's Inn, but I'm not sure if I may put it this way, who, who they've got now. Um, <laughs> it's very well known that Her Late Majesty the Queen Mother held the Middle Temple in very great affection. Uh, and maintained close links with it, rarely missing a grand day, which is the very smart dinner that each of the inns has once a year. In describing this, Shawcross tells how in the early 1960s, the middle arranged for some of its overseas students to spend a weekend at Cumberland Lodge. And, says William Shawcross, this proved so successful that arrangements were made for two weekends a year to be reserved for them. Well, I don't know whether the Middle Temple was first, but the early 60s sounds right. As I say, it had been going on for a little while by the time I first came here, at the end of the 60s. It's worth bearing in mind, given the reference there to the overseas students, that back in the 60s there were very many overseas students at the four inns of court. Now, an enduring inheritance of the British Empire of which we should all be uh, proud, was and is the diaspora of the common law, which remains the legal system prevailing in many countries of the Commonwealth. And I mention it because in the 1960s, many Commonwealth states, though having common law systems, lacked law schools of their own. So what did they do? They sent their budding lawyers to the inns in London. And there must be many lawyers across the world with fond recollections not only of one or other of the inns of court, but also of Cumberland Lodge. <coughs> the Inner Temple also brought its students from home and abroad here twice a year, as I've said. 
They did so in the winter and in the summertime. I well remember uh, playing croquet on the lawn at the back of the house in June. It was lovely. That has changed now, uh, at least as far as the inner temple is concerned. We still come here uh, twice a year in the winter in December, but our second weekend is in March, not the summertime. I can't recall when that change was made, but I think the reason for it was that the summer is examination time, and in these serious times, that is thought to be something of a disincentive to such pleasures as Cumberland Lodge weekends. Great pity, I think. I will say something in a minute about the kind of subjects we studied and do study at these weekends, because that's very important uh, as being some insight into the value that this place has given to the Inns of Court, in particular their distinctive value to beginners in the legal profession. But first, if I may, I'd like to give you something of an idea of what the weekends were like back in the late 60s. I will not say that Cumberland Lodge was an austere place, but it was not so comfortable and well-appointed as it is now. There was, I think, Alistair will know, uh, and the staff will know better than I, there was, I think, a major refurbishment in the 1970s. Back in the 60s, the accommodation in the Mews was a thing of the future. The students slept in dormitories, or at any rate, bedrooms with maybe four to a room. I must confess to a particular memory of a room with four girls in it. Wouldn't be, <laughs> not be right to go any further into that. There was no bar, so we would troop down to the Fox and Hounds at Bishopsgate on the Saturday evening. The landlord, whose name was Gordon, had, shall I put it, a somewhat hazy understanding of his obligation under the licensing laws to call time. <laughs> and so the long night wore on. <laughs> if conditions at the lodge were perhaps a little spartan, at least by today's standards, that was, I think, compounded by the rather hierarchical way in which the weekends were run by the inn. Nowadays, we, that is to say, students and seniors alike, benchers, judges, barristers, and the bar students, attach a lot of value to the opportunities at our weekends to meet and to talk informally as a single group, at meals, in the bar, and generally. But in those earlier days, the benches of the inn, benches you will know are the governing body of each of the inns, the benches, and I suppose the invited speakers, had their own drawing room. It was the room next to the lounge in, in the main building, the room where I think the television is. And they would hole up there. They brought their own drink down from the inner temple. No question of buying a student a pint or anything remotely like that. So far as I remember, there was actually very little fraternizing between seniors and juniors, except at the formal uh, sessions of the weekend. The student advocacy exercises, conducted mainly, or if I remember rightly, entirely on the Sunday, were almost invariably practiced pleas in mitigation. 
they would take place in a plenary session in the lounge. All the students would watch the single student whose turn it was uh, to make his plea in mitigation. I remember one poor girl uh, who, when she got up, was so nervous that she couldn't speak. She stood there, mouth opening and shutting. It was terrible. Uh, There would also be prizes for the best uh, plea in mitigation. So it was, as you can see, all a little hierarchical and a little uh, solemn. The chairman of our Cumberland Lodge committee, which ran the weekends at that time, was a venture QC who later became what we would nowadays call a technology and construction judge. In those days, he was called an official referee. Uh, I'd much rather be an official referee than a technology and construction judge, but still. He was a talented man, uh, and unlike some of the benches at that time, he had a genuine interest in the students, but he was not very easygoing, and humor was not, I think, among his stronger suits. Well, time passed. I continued to come to the weekends during some of my early years at the bar to help run the student groups. The weekends continued much as before for some considerable time. But by the time Judge Henry Pownall was chairman of the Cumberland Lodge Committee at the Inner Temple, in the 1980s, things were changing. Henry was a warm man, charming, completely without pomp, very interested in the young, with whom he got on naturally and enjoyably. It was always something of a double-take, I used to feel, to imagine Henry as a stern and solemn judge at the Central Criminal Court, the Old Bailey, although that is where he sat. I don't know when the bar here at Cumberland Lodge was inaugurated. It certainly became a catalyst for socialising and exchanging ideas between young and old, senior and junior. Uh, And that became the norm in Henry Pownall's time. We were also very fortunate at the Inner Temple in having a succession of very talented and dedicated student officers who actively promoted student affairs and had the respect and cooperation of the benchers. So the inner temple became a much friendlier, much more positive, and I suppose, if you like, a much more modern place. We found that our Cumberland Lodge weekends were oversubscribed, as they still are, and the whole enterprise was much enhanced by the entertainment organized by one of our benchers, Richard Salter, QC, on the Saturday night, sketches and songs and so forth, in which the students displayed their thespian talents, not inconsiderable thespian talents. And uh, at Christmas time, the December weekend, there'd, of course, be carols. And Richard Salter, fortunately, continues to do his stuff uh, at our weekends after, what, 20 years and more, I think. From 1993 to 2000, I was the chairman of the committee, having succeeded Henry Pownall. And we kept much the same format uh, for the weekends. Uh, There would be an introductory or keynote address on the theme of the weekend on the Friday evening. There'd be talks from visiting speakers and discussion on the Saturday morning. There'd be a demonstration case, a, a mock trial with real barristers and a real judge 
on the Saturday afternoon after tea, and then in the evening there'd probably be a brains trust or a discussion panel uh, on the subject of the weekend, followed by Richard Salter's entertainment. There was, as there still is, uh, the opportunity to go to the morning service at the Royal Chapel on the Sunday on the Sunday morning, and then finally there'd be the student advocacy exercises on the Sunday afternoon, not by now in a plenary session, but in different groups operating at the same time. Not all the inns of court uh, follow the same kind of programme at Cumberland Lodge as we do. The Middle Temple, I understand, devote much the greater part, if not the whole, of their weekends to student advocacy exercises. But we have found that the mix of talks, discussion, a demonstration case and advocacy exercises to be very popular with the students uh, and uh, also to be a very convenient vehicle for the wide range of subjects that we cover here at Cumberland Lodge. The programme has been tweaked somewhat since my time and I'm sure for the better. Now I want to say something about the kinds of subjects we cover at these weekends. It is, of course, well known that Amy Buller's original inspiration was to create a college that would inculcate fundamentally Christian values, especially among the young, and as I understand it, with perhaps an emphasis on the young of London University and on Commonwealth students. The Inns of Court, whose students nowadays, of course, are of many religions and of none, do not necessarily articulate their core values in distinctly Christian terms or religious terms at all. But the inner temple, and I'm sure the others, do use these very valuable weekends to promote forms of study which I think are true to the spirit of the St. Catherine's Foundation. While some of our sessions have been devoted to what might be called black-letter law, more often than not, we have been concerned with the ethics behind the law, on the punishment of criminals, on the dilemma between state security and due process, on free expression, on the law's approach to religion, and many, many others. We have had guest speakers of great distinction from different walks of life, and upon all these subjects, we have always encouraged our students to think for themselves, and to, but to do so rigorously and with that respect for objective evidence, which lawyers perhaps especially ought to have. This approach has something to say about the value of law, and it is here that we shall find a connection, a philosophical, you could almost say spiritual, connection with the values of the St. Catherine's Foundation. There is a centuries-old debate about what law means. The positivists have maintained that law is merely a series of commands issued by whatever body is recognized as the state authority having the power to enforce its orders. But many others, from Professor Lon Fuller in the United States to the late Lord Bingham in his book The Rule of Law, have urged that law is only law if its content is virtuous. If you treat this debate as a search for what law is, you will find it arid and doomed to failure. 
It's the wrong model. It is not as if, by looking hard and long enough for the evidence, you will be rewarded by discovering the true nature of law. Law is not a matter of fact to be found out by diligent inquiry. It is a matter of how we choose to use the language, the word law, what we choose to mean by law. The true question, or I should say the more interesting question is, what should the law be? What should it contain? And this is where law and ethics confront each other. For sure, the law should be certain and accessible. Governments must be subject to it. It should not impose retrospective sanctions. But these are the foothills. We should expect our law, should we not, to be just. You can argue, of course, about the proper scope of justice, as has been done since the time of Plato, at least. But we would probably agree today that justice should promote what we would regard as civilized values, a proper balance between individual rights and the interests of the community, between state security and due process, which I mentioned earlier, an emphasis on individual liberty, protection of the weak, and strong rules to bring public bodies to account. It would take 50 Cumberland Lodge weekends to explore the range of goods which we might wish the law to deliver. But these goods, these civilized values, cannot be arrived at or cast into law by reference to a prior book of rules. They have to be thought about, argued over, and reasoned. The judges can only develop the common law so as to give effect to these values if they command something like a general assent. They have to be intellectually muscular. Sir Gerard Brennan, Chief Justice of Australia, from 1995 to 98, said this in a lecture in Dublin in 1997, having no power but the power of judgment, the judiciary has no power base but public confidence in its integrity and competence in performing the functions assigned to it. There must be such a degree of public confidence in the court's application of the law that neither power nor riches nor political office, nor numerical superiority can stand against the weight of the court's authority. It is not just that the judges must be impartial and independent and incorrupt. That ought to go without saying. It's more than this. Their reasoning must stand up to scrutiny and persuade. They have, thankfully, no tanks to roll onto other people's lawns. Here at Cumberland Lodge, these values and virtues and this approach and attitude are open for discussion with tomorrow's lawyers and judges who are today's students. There are many dilemmas. What do you do with someone who is known to be a terrorist risk but against whom there's no admissible evidence to put him on trial? How should you balance retributive punishment with rehabilitation? How should you balance free speech with privacy or the rights of homosexuals with those whose religious views are based on a literal reading of scripture? At every turn, we have to bring to bear an informed and rational mind. We have to think for ourselves and most certainly, we must encourage the young to do the same. There is no better place to do it than here.
No better place to inculcate the patient arts of reason and learning. They are the coin of civilized values, and I believe they are at the core of the St. Catherine's tradition. Lord Denning, I think, would have agreed. He was visitor to Cumberland Lodge, in which office, as Alistair has said, I have the very great honor to be his successor after Her Royal Highness Princess Margaret. But before that, in the early days, Denning was chairman of the trustees. The first principal of the foundation, Sir Walter Moberly, invited him in 1950 to undertake that office. Uh, Owen, sitting at the back over there, told me at coffee that he thought Lord Halifax had been uh, chairman before that, in which case uh, Denning would have been the second one after the foundation started in 47. Denning remained chairman of the trustees for 19 years and then continued as visitor. He was a Lincoln's Inn man, so I, I never had the pleasure of sharing a weekend here with him, though at the bar I appeared in front of him in court quite a few times, and he was what I would describe as a loose exocet. <laughs> he, he was also a, a devout Christian, for many years president of the Lawyers' Christian Fellowship. He once wrote that, quote, without religion there is no morality, and without morality there is no law. I would not agree with him about the first of those propositions, and the second one engages the debate I mentioned uh, earlier. That is another conversation, another weekend. As visitor and as a bencher of Lincoln's Inn, I know that Denning came often to the lodge. His affinity for this place must have been underlined by the interest he took in law students from the Commonwealth, very much the clientele which the Middle Temple had recognized early in the 1960s. In his book, The Family Story, he says that he and his wife Joan had been photographed here with the students a thousand times, and no doubt he had. Denning's interest in the young is, I think, a feature of the quality for which he is perhaps best known, his ability to endow the law with a human face. He also packed a very powerful intellect. He drove the law forward on many fronts. He has his critics but his eye for those patient arts of reason and learning, the coin of civilized values, the core of the St. Catherine's tradition, was sure enough. And he was a sure advocate of the balances to be struck for the attainment of civilized values. Here is something he said in the conclusion of his book, What Next in the Law, which was published in 1982. I, I return to whence I started, Power tends to corrupt. This I have shown you. That's very dead, isn't it? This I have shown you. <laughs> that is why in civilized society there should be a system of checks and balances to restrain the abuse of power. It is why in times past we stood firm against the oppression of King John and set store by our Magna Carta. Well, Denny lived to a great age. I hadn't appreciated he'd been present at running. <laughs> It is why we rebelled against the divine right of kings and enacted our Bill of Rights. We're still going in the 17th century. <laughs> it is why we resist today the conferring of absolute power on any person or body. 
or any section of the community. There is, as far as I know, only one restraint on which we can rely. It is the restraint afforded by the law. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if the law is to do its work, the time and space for reflection and the honing of ideas given to its exponents by Cumberland Lodge through the Inns of Court weekends has a value that is hard to exaggerate. Thank you very much.